0: One of my favorite things to do when I get a new follower on Instagram, speaking of which, it's Boundless Heart Pod. Find me there. Is ask if there are any topics that the new follower would want to hear about. One recent response was, "How do you deal with an anxious attachment?" What is anxious attachment? Here's an example of some text I've received, and people have told me that this person sending the texts is displaying some anxious attachment tendencies. How are you? You destroyed my life. The only way to make it better is for you to come back. I'm so sorry for everything that I have done to destroy our relationship. I'll do anything I can to make it better. We'll work on ourselves. I know it's going to be hard, but we can do this. Can you talk? I can't survive without you. And my favorite, although I feel, I really feel for this person. I got this virtual reality video game. And it lets you fly around like you're Iron Man. If you come back, I'll let you play it. Okay, first of all, there's so much wrong in that. One, I don't care about video games. I never have. Two, um, you don't have the authority to let me do anything. Thank you very much. And three, you don't know me at all. I'd rather just watch Iron Man. Anyway, we are going to dive into attachment theory today. And you're going to know more about yourself than you have ever known about yourself after this episode. You're listening to the Boundless Heart podcast. Welcome, my friend. We are here to empower you into shameless self-respect, independence, and equal partnership. You're not going to have any of that until you know why you react the ways you react, especially in relationships, but not only romantic, all relationships. Today, Juniper Wong, who is a licensed therapist, talks about attachment styles. This episode is going to break down what the four attachment styles are. One is secure. The other three are insecure. That's most people. Next time Juniper comes on, We're going to dive into actually working with and recovering from these different attachment styles. Let's dive in. I cannot wait to share this with you. Juniper, why should we care about
1: attachment theory? Ah, such a good question. Okay, so I think that why I love attachment theory is its origins really were in studying infants with their mothers but it's really based off of evolutionary theory too. There's incorporated elements of evolution, but also neuroscience of how our brains work. And so much of attachment theory is not just based on, I do think there's still a stigma around talking about love, talking about relationships, talking about softness and compassion. And attachment theory really brings together like the biology, the neuroscience of love and relationships with the psychology, the quote-unquote, what some people might label as fluff. Obviously, I don't think it's fluff. But the other stuff, the more gushy parts of things, and puts it together into a way that makes a lot of sense, I think, for a lot of people. Because all these things, tender touch, words of affirmation, quality time, security, they all affect our nervous systems. They all affect the way our brain develops. And attachment theory really goes into that on a biological level, how it impacts not just our childhood, but also the way our nervous systems and brains are wired in childhood get carried into adulthood. And because we're wired that way on a physiological level, it's affecting our responses to people in our adult present lives. And we're not even conscious of it because this is just how we've been for probably decades or years and years and years. And so I think that's the one side of it. The other side of attachment theory that I love so much is it's so hopeful. It's not like you're this one thing and this is what you're going to be for the rest of your life. It really does dive into how you can change how malleable and neuroplastic our brains and our bodies are and how healing and establishing security, even if you did not have a secure childhood or if you had some really traumatic relationships, how it's possible. So that's my brief. (laughs) It's perfect. And it does bring
0: it more tangibly into our world, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Whereas don't get me wrong. I love things like astrology Mm -hmm. that show you, wow, you were born under (laughs) this sky and this is your personality. (laughs) Yeah. And it is incredible, isn't it? It's enlightening and it's validating. Mm -hmm. And mm, it's not like you can't work with that and change it. Mm -hmm. But for most people, it seems like, okay, this is how I am. And then that's just it. Mm -hmm. So with attachment theory, Mm -hmm. which I'm going to ask you what it is (laughs) next, you can actually see yourself, see these patterns and then realize that you can change them and decide to or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah
1: so what is attachment theory? Yes. <laughs> There's so many answers to that question of what is attachment theory so I'm going to try to make it very simple and Perfect. casual. <laughs> the way I explain attachment theory is basically how our relationships with our primary caregivers, especially in childhood, impact our perception of self and our perception of others. Perception of self is how worthy am I? What do I, quote unquote, need to do in order to receive and to give love? How safe am I? And perception of others is how safe are others? How do others perceive me when I voice my needs and ask for my needs? How capable am I of meeting the needs of others? It mostly has to do with our relationship with caregivers. But for some people, their attachment does get disrupted. They could have had a great childhood, but they might have had a relationship with domestic violence or something, some sort of toxic relationship, which could have had some sort of traumatic impact, but you see the effects of it slightly differently in how it manifests later on.
0: Wow. So interesting.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I had to the typical world, uh, a fairly normal childhood, mm-hmm. fairly functional, mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll say family.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I'm so excited to kind of dig in because I want to know what I am <laughs> my listeners know this, but I've been divorced twice, Mm -hmm. and once really recently, and I'm learning about attachment theory and seeing Mm -hmm. kind of what his is, Mm -hmm. and I'm still perplexed on, like, what is what made that happen? So, okay, let's start with what are the styles? There are four Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. main?
1: Yes. There are four styles. One of them is secure, and the other three are under the category of insecure. So... (laughs) which is great.
0: (laughs) Um, Great ratio. I know (laughs) our chances are already
1: slim. (laughs) Ooh, I will address that later because I thought that before too. So secure attachers in general, the theory is that they had primary caregivers who were attuned to them in childhood. So what that means is not just that there was a roof over your head and that you weren't hit or neglected or starved or abused and, some kind of way. But it's also the fact that your parents were, or whoever your caregivers were, were also attuned to you and able to help you to process and regulate your emotions in present time at that point. So secure attachment is basically parents who are attuned, right? Parents who are ready to be emotionally available. That's why, oh my gosh, one of the things I'm passionate about, and I'm not sure how we could ever get there, but I really think There should be subsidized child care. There should be things to help mothers, working mothers and families know that their children are going to be cared for in a safe way. So secure attachment, there's attunement. There is consistency. That's a big one too. I'm going to actually just go into the insecure styles. And then when we talk about that, you'll start to see what's missing. And basically whatever was missing in those insecure styles is what the secure (laughs) child got. So the first thing is, as you're listening, if you're trying to like categorize yourself, I just want you to know, most people have elements of all four styles in them. So you have elements of secure attachment, and then all three of the other ones, it kind of just depends on what the percentage is, there's like a pie chart, that's just something to be aware of. It's a spectrum, you're not going to fit into one category or the other, but you will resonate more with one category or the other, and see more of those traits in one category. So the first one is avoidant dismissive. Okay. So these are the ones that get the most crap (laughs) because I don't know if you've seen that show being promoted F boy Island or even too hot to handle on Netflix. Okay. I'm a huge fan of trashy reality TV. It's my research. Um, F-Boy Island is all about, you know, can I cuss on this show? Okay, so it's about fuckboys, guys who quote-unquote identify as players. The avoidant dismissive, I would say in general, is probably the fuckboy, right? So they get a lot of flack, but out of all the types, I think they might actually be the most fragile. There have been studies done on different attachment styles and how they um, perceive or receive rejection, or negative feedback. And avoidant dismissives actually take negative feedback and being disliked the harshest out of all the four attachment styles. So it's not that they don't care. I think in my experience, avoidant dismissives almost don't know how to care. It's either they care so much that they become so vulnerable that they get overwhelmed. And so they have to shut down and not care entirely. They haven't learned yet how to have that balance of moving through vulnerability and being okay with it. So avoiding dismisses in general in childhood had emotionally unavailable parents could be for a variety of reasons. It could have been truly just neglectful parents who didn't care about the child and were emotionally or physically abusive, or it could just be parents who were emotionally unavailable because they were stressed and busy and trying to provide for the family because parents are emotionally unavailable when children are crying or upset or hurt or confused. They have to suppress their natural desires because talking about or showing this distress or big emotions leads to rejection or punishment. It might lead to the parents yelling at them. It might lead to the parents locking them in the bathroom. It might lead to the parents giving them, might even just be like a timeout. Like, we can't handle you showing us your emotions. Like, go away from us for a while. And for a child, that's so difficult because humans... I'm still amazed that humans have reached the level of power in the animal kingdom that we have (laughs) because we are born so (laughs) pathetic (laughs) like when we're like, and we take so long. (laughs) I'm just like, I'm amazed like, you know, the other animals didn't wipe us out (laughs) earlier. Somehow we've survived. And so for a human child, our survival is dependent on our parents. So if we're like locked in the bathroom and we're three years old and crying and upset, that does feel like life or death to us because our survival depends on that. So what the avoidant dismissive had to do was learn to not cry, to not express big feelings because they were given kind of that decision. Do I get to stay close to my caregiver or do I show my emotions? And for a little one, the choice is let's not show my emotions so I can at least physically stay in proximity to my caregiver and receive food or whatever other kind of nurturing I might be able to receive. They might have been praised also for being a strong little boy or girl, for not crying, for being all those things. I might have been praised for those things. So they kept learning to stay in this proximity to this person. I need to shut my, atta- my natural attachment system down. My natural desire to reach out for help. My natural desire to express myself needs to be shut down to stay close to this person. And what that ends up happening is they disconnect from their bodies because emotions are very much a body experience, bodily lived experience. So they, a lot of avoidant dismissives are very trapped in their heads, not as in tune with
0: what (laughs) (laughs) she's laughing at me because I'm being like, oh shit, (laughs) I'm so in my head. (laughs)
1: And they kind of see relationships as black and white. There's none of that healthy interdependence. They kind of see it as like, I'm either going to be totally engulfed and lose myself and like lose self-sufficiency or I'm just going to be alone I, Though, and I need to be alone and totally self-sufficient. Like those are the two options for the,
0: <laughs> you guys,
1: I'm here. Are you relating um, to Ms. some I of am. this? <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to share
0: I can. It's so interesting. I feel deeply and intensely and I Mm -hmm. allow it. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I, I don't know. And my mom listens to this so Hi mom. And she'll even say this (laughs) sometimes. I would be so dramatic or so Mm -hmm. self-critical, so emotional that I think they didn't know what to do. They wanted to help. They didn't know Mm -hmm. how. And maybe that happened, but moving forward quite a lot I definitely have felt like I want a partner so bad, Uh, not at this moment I've recently divorced and I am good with being single, I want to be single maybe forever, maybe not (laughs) see, that's what I'm talking about, I'm like oh uh, I want to be alone because then I don't have to deal with anyone else
1: (laughs) a valid life choice by the way thank you, I appreciate that, (laughs) I think that's a Very valid life choice. Even though I teach attachment and relationships, I fully support singleness by choice. Like, I think it's great. Thanks. Honestly. Because I have
0: lost myself to relationships. I've abandoned myself Mm -hmm. to relationships. Not all the way, Mm -hmm. but certainly I'm resonating here. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. People pleasing, kind of codependent tendencies that I've recognized very, very recently. And I'm just like, how did this happen? And well, we're trained to do it patriarchally. And yeah, so that's my share for the avoidant dismissive. I might have a bit of that in me.
1: I'm hearing probably anxious, preoccupied. Oh, I'm sure I have it
0: all. Uh, And that to me, I'm trying to decide if I want to talk about my ex-husband. I have been told (laughs) by a couple people that he's showing signs of anxious attachment Hmm. After I've left, so I'm curious. That's I, I'm okay. also curious. As an adult, <laughs> what can you recognize in somebody? Say you're starting to date somebody or whatever, and you're like, or maybe you've been mm-hmm. in a relationship for a long time. What do they do? Mm-hmm. How do they act if somebody is dismissive, yeah, avoidant, dismissive?
1: Very good questions. Can I do? You a, can do anything uh, you want. You'll you'll see. These are my this is my brain. It's like a tangent machine. Something that you said that I just wanted to point out. I wish I knew the exact study, but I have read studies before that on a neurological level, there are certain people who are wired to be more sensitive on an empathic level, meaning they are considered highly sensitive. They're more able to intuitively pick up other people's facial expressions, tones of voice, all that kind of stuff. It really is like a genetic wiring kind of mode. So anyway, I just thought that was interesting when thinking about you. And how different you may be from your parents, right? (laughs) Because like if a child is born and they're gifted in like basketball, whereas their parents weren't at all, nobody really questions it, right? Nobody's like, well, your parents were never like that. So you shouldn't be so good at basketball, you know? But when a child is born being really good at empathizing and feeling and feeling intensely and questioning and doubting and wondering, it's often seen as a like, why are you like this? None of us are like this. So stop because <laughs> you're being weird or whatever it might be. So yeah. I, I just thought that I just yes, to a Yes. And I bet out. a lot of the people who are listening can resonate with that too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I will talk about, so dating and avoidant dismissive. So avoidant dismissives actually in the beginning are very hard to necessarily Trek. I mean, there are some things, obviously, like if you find out that they're in their 30s and have never been in a serious relationship that lasted longer than six months, most likely they have some.
0: That's not (laughs) me, that's my ex. (laughs)
1: Okay. (laughs) So you're going to pretty much like right away, it's like, okay, they have avoidant dismissive tendencies. They tend to, in the first two to three months, be great, like really great, especially if you have some. Actually, no, even if you're a securely attached person. It's not like you would necessarily be able to tell. It's not like a magical, you know, thing. And avoidant dismissives actually in the beginning are pretty good at mirroring their partners. So it's not that they're being fake. I don't think that they're doing this on purpose, but like they are good at emotionally kind of reflecting back what the person's just giving to them. They're kind of like bouncing it back to them. And it's all good and dandy and fine in the beginning when there's no expectation of commitment. And there's no expectation of consistent vulnerability or emotional availability. (laughs) It's that thing where it's like, you know how people say bartenders are like therapists. And it's almost like people are comfortable talking to bartenders because there's no expectations. It's this combination of, oh, I was tipsy. That's why I told you that. There's always an out if you're going to say like, I'm going to confide in a bartender. And I feel like dismissive avoidance would be great at confiding with bartenders (laughs) because it's like they can, they have that side, they do want to connect. But about two or three months down the road, anxiety pops up inside of them. And I don't even know if they would recognize it as anxiety. Anxious preoccupied, which is another style we're going to talk about, and avoided dismissives, both fundamentally operate from anxiety. Their fundamental emotion or core emotional experience that they wrestle with is anxiety, but their way to cope with the anxiety is opposite. So it's almost like one of them's a smoker, one of them's a compulsive shopper. And it might seem like, oh, the smoker's worse, like cigarettes are bad for everyone knows that. But either way, both of them are trying to just get away from anxiety and dealing with it in opposite ways. We hate on the avoidant dismissive. And I I have definitely <laughs> In my past too. So like, yeah, I'm not immune to that. I definitely dated some extreme. And then I was not aware of attachment theory at all. So, you know, very (laughs) angry. But um, you can see them because around month two or three, they start withdrawing. So there's all this emotional intimacy in the beginning. Sometimes you can see it in love bombing. The person who gives too much too soon is saying a lot of the things too soon that is usually reserved When you want to take time to trust someone and really trust them with that. And then around month two or three, they start to withdraw, feel overwhelmed, feel engulfed, feel like they need space. Unfortunately, too, because they were never trained to express their needs in a healthy way in childhood, they might become passive aggressive or aggressive aggressive in asserting their need for space. Because they deserve space. Everyone deserves space. They could easily say, Hey, I'm realizing this has been great and I love spending time with you, but I've gotten away from some of my own projects and my own space time with myself. And I, I really want to take a few days just apart for each of us to do our own thing and reconnect afterwards. They could say that, but like, unless they're highly aware of their attachment style and what's really going on, they're suddenly just going to feel uncomfortable and project that discomfort onto their partner. And be like, ugh, she wants so much, ugh. Am I going to have to see her all the time or him all the time, whatever it might be? Ugh, ugh, ugh. And then just start withdrawing without really communicating (laughs) their needs because it's not that they want to break up with you. They just want you to leave them alone. And they kind of learned that, like, if I express my needs, I get punished and the attachment gets taken away from me. So I'm just, like, not going to say anything and disappear (laughs) And it'll be fine. <laughs> like the opposite is true. But yeah, that's one of the biggest patterns that we see in avoidant dismissives. And in general, avoidant dismissives and secure types tend to make the most money, which I thought was so interesting because avoidant dismissives are so good at shutting down that need for a relationship to survive and depend on themselves. And so they can really detach their attachment system go into work, fully focus on the project at hand and execute, even while their relationship is like falling apart, which as a general rule for people are, who have a large chunk of avoidant dismissive traits in them. And it's for anxious preoccupied, that's truly amazing. That is a truly amazing thing to do. I never had much of avoidant dismissive traits in myself ever um, in my life. And so I used to date a, most likely very avoidant dismissive men, and I would just see them ignore me and do their work. And it was so annoying because all I could think about was our relationship, you know, and what was going wrong with it. And they're just like achieving things. <laughs> it was very irritating.
0: Yeah. Okay. So does that answer your question? Yes. It totally answers my question. Thank you. You mentioned anxious preoccupied. So let's do that. Yes. Um.
1: Oh, well, I'm biased because that's me. well, and the next one. (laughs) Um, I resonate with this one a lot. So for anxious preoccupied, this was definitely me. What they had was inconsistent, unreliably attuned parents or caregivers, whoever their guardians were. So sometimes they would get the nurturing that they need. Sometimes they wouldn't. Sometimes they would get attention and tenderness. Sometimes they would get harsh reprimands and punishment. It was just very inconsistent and unreliable. What are they going to get today? That's what I grew up with. It was one of those things of hearing the garage door open and all of my senses go on alert and, oh, what's going to happen today? Who's going to walk in the door? We don't know. We're not sure. So that's anxious preoccupied. The children become uncertain and confused because they never know what treatment, you know, they're going to receive. It makes sense. And they get very um, distrustful and suspicious in general. <laughs> I remember it was so funny because growing up, my sister was born at a time when my parents were not as stressed yet. And I was actually a an accident baby, an oops baby, right? And so I was born into a very stressful you were time against. in their lives. Very, very, very stressful. <laughs> 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 now I'm a gift. <laughs> At the time, I think I just freaked them, like freaked them out. Yeah. They were not ready. Um, and it's really funny cause everyone, when we were younger was like my sister's name, Jessica, Jessica's such a nice girl. She's so polite. She's so friendly. Whereas I would be this like child in the corner, suspiciously judging all these people. And my parents would be like, say hi to this person. Like, hug them or shake hands with them. I'm like, why? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know them. I'm not going to be nice to somebody who hasn't been nice to me. I don't know this person. And it was like part of me, you know, and and adults never really liked me growing up because I was always just kind of like, I don't trust you, stupid bitch. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I don't trust these people. So what they – can do what anxious preoccupied tend to resort to instead of shutting down their attachment system is they do the opposite of avoiding dismisses their attachment system goes into overdrive so they become clingy and very needy and very upset if the attachment figure goes away like to work or another room or something like that it really distresses them to a very like heightened place the teacher or babysitter has a very hard time calming this kind of kid down. And actually, this was part of me in like preschool to kindergarten years. I remember being inconsolable. And then the kid again, who like all the kids were in the music circle, and I'd be on the outside, (laughs) like pouting and sad because I wanted my mom. And so that's kind of where the anxious preoccupied starts coming in. They end up disconnecting from a sense of play and exploration and socialization. Because of that, they end up disconnecting from an inner sense of peace and safety. They end up disconnecting from self-acceptance. They start to learn to judge their worth by their caregiver's reaction to them. And since they're always trying to modify And their little brain is trying to figure out what can I do to get this person to respond tenderly to me today. They disconnect from their own sense of self-acceptance and belonging. And anxious preoccupied in general have the hardest time with boundaries because of that. There is always that sense of maybe something I do or don't do could make this person give me what I need today just to give a practical example, my mom was, the main thing she would get mad at us for was about messiness, right? Was a uh, mess in the house. And so the child brain will be like, oh, if I'm clean, then this thing will happen for me. This is what I need to do. And then the way that translates into adult relationships with partners is always this strategizing. The brain is very busy for anxious preoccupied. It's always like, Well, if I do this, maybe I should do this. And maybe if I do this, then he'll respond or she'll respond this way. And if I don't do this, then maybe they'll respond this way. That's the childhood part of it. Anxious preoccupieds, because their parents and caregivers were so inconsistent, they also become, I actually do think they're, in a way, they're less sensitive than avoidant dismissives, actually. But they're more emotionally in tune and interpreting signals on a constant basis. So, what I mean by less sensitive is no rejection is going to hit them as hard as it does for an avoidant dismissive, because they're getting rejected all the time. So, so, I know. I know. so like in a way, it does. Of course, it causes them distress, but it actually doesn't cause them as much distress as the avoidant dismissive because part of them is always kind of expecting it. Oh, it that makes, makes sense.
0: perfect sense. You're explaining yeah,
1: <laughs> my ex-husband to a T and some of me. Great. But what they are good at is automatically picking up any shift in your facial expression, tone of voice, mannerisms, or just the energy in the air. The problem with anxious preoccupied is they tend to personalize everything. So that's both of us.
0: I'm telling you what, the two of us were perfectly paired, anxious, preoccupied, in that we could read everything and then analyze it to death, and then oh man, <laughs> yes. Wow. Okay. So, sounds um sounds mm. fun. Not fun. It was not fun it for was me. Not fun.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: I got to tell you a story. I'm gonna cut in. We were kay. doing this book to make a successful marriage. My great aunt Jean wrote it. She's amazing. And I said, Jean, can I have Mm -hmm. that book? One of the questions, and when it looked at childhood, one of the questions was who had the power in your household? And my answer was my mom. She made the decisions, you know, his answer, whoever won the argument had the power. (laughs) I'm like, no wonder that's you're always yeah. debating and arguing. And I am I'm a Libra five times over five planets in Libra, which is the peacemaker. Read people pleaser. Mm-hmm. Ugh. And mm-hmm. I don't want to argue. Like, let's just have a conversation. Mm-hmm. Get on the same page, even if it's a disagreement, whatever. Oh, no,
1: not with him. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. I'm... I'm like tempted to ask so many more questions. Well we can later. I'm not going to right now. (laughs) We can later
0: because I'd love (laughs) to answer you.
1: (laughs) I'm like, go off the mic after this. Because I would love to. Yes, off the mic. Yeah. So all of that, what you were talking about, that very heightened attunement, it's almost like, you know, those like sonar things that like submarines have. We have that inbuilt into the back of our brains, constantly scanning our environment for threats to our emotional safety. For anxious preoccupied that experience this in childhood, it translates on like an amygdala level down to not just feeling emotionally unsafe, but physically bodily unsafe. They might know in their brains, this is totally irrational, but I feel my, my entire body feels in danger and threatened right now. And I don't know what to do about it. Whereas anxious preoccupied who develop that more like in adulthood because of something that happened, like a bad relationship They tend to feel the lack of safety more emotionally. It doesn't ever get down to that really lizard brain, amygdala, deep, constant fight or flight level. But they might feel it on an emotional level to be very distressing. Shall we talk about the third? last? Yes, I would love to. So the last type is fearful avoidant um, attachment. This is also an insecure type. And the other word for this is disorganized. The reason why, and this is a really difficult type of attachment style to heal for a lot of people in terms of like personality disorders, it's been linked to borderline personality disorder in terms of other mental health diagnoses, it has been linked with complex PTSD. So it's tough. I really feel for this group. And again, this was a significant part of my attachment. This is a group of kids who have constant episodes or events or experiences of fear and fright without solutions with their caregivers. For example, I had one caregiver who helped to raise me and she was really obsessed with getting me to learn how to braid my hair in the way that she wanted me to braid it. Looking back on it, it was completely bizarre, So she really wanted me to learn how to braid my hair in this particular way. And so she would sit me in front of the mirror for like hours to braid my hair and like force me to keep braiding my hair the way that she wanted to, but then constantly also punish me for not doing it correctly in the way that she wanted. So it's kind of like setting kids up for situations in which they will fail, in which they are going to be criticized or hit or whatever, and not giving them a clear solution. Because it wasn't like she was unhappy with it and then said, here, let me show you how, step by step, or here, maybe try this new technique today and then we'll build on those things. Eventually you'll get it. It was very much like, no, that's wrong. Do it again. And just, just waiting kind of thing. And so that really... Um, fucks up kids. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> very often people with fearful, avoidant, uh, disorganized attachment have caregivers with unresolved trauma and loss. And you see this as a generational cycle. The most common thing you'll see with caregivers is, especially if parents struggled with substance use, there is a lot of disorganized attachment as a result in kids with parents who were actively using the parent themselves is prone to flooding during times of stress so the parent is already an, a traumatized person who has unhealed trauma their kid is freaking out their kid is freaking out cuz they can't have a candy bar or something right their kids yelling and screaming floods the parent the parent goes into their fight or flight response they respond from a place of trauma to their child which you know perpetuates the trauma. They also have very erratic behavior, which doesn't make like literally any sense to their child. It's somewhat similar to anxious preoccupied, but usually a bit more, I would say intense because of unpredictable components. So like it might also involve, you know, multiple random partners coming to the house. It might involve the parent If they are, like, let's say substance abuse is a problem, it won't just be like the parent getting mad at the kid. It could also be the parent totally high and out of it and like lying on the couch for hours with very little facial expression or interaction with the child, which really scares kids. It really scares kids not to get feedback from their parents. So the behavior is just very confusing, very, very, very confusing to the child. Children who have fearful avoidant attachment, they become ambivalent. They both want and fear closeness to the caregiver. So what you see with these children is they often are labeled the quote unquote bad kids in school. They have avoidant and resistant and aggressive behaviors. It's strange because on the one hand, they want a hug. But then if you try to go hug them, they might punch you in the face. So it's like, do you, do you want to hug or not? <laughs> you know? And they don't know. <laughs> They're like, uh, I want to hug, but I don't know if I can hug you, but I want to hug you. But should I hug you? Because I don't know. And as a kid, you'll see them when disorganized children get reunited with their parents if they've been separated for a period of time. When they come back to the parent, they might run up to the parent and then suddenly like freeze And then run back away again, or they'll run to the parent and freeze and like drop to the floor. They display unusual behavior. None of the other attachment styles really do that. And they have very little emotional regulation. Again, with adults who are traumatized, if they're raising a child, they're probably not able to model emotional regulation. They may be using other numbing mechanisms to regulate their own emotions. So the child doesn't grow up with any skills or tools for regulating their own. And there's no sense of safety in close relationships. They can also end up being very dazed and dissociated. They're just the kid who's kind of constantly not really engaging, just off. And nobody really knows like what's going on with them. But everyone can kind of tell they're just not really socially engaging in the way that you would expect for a five-year-old or six-year-old or something like that. So what they end up disconnecting from is their innate ability to self-soothe a sense of safety and trust and solid friendships and relationships. And out of all of the attachment styles, I would say people with disorganized attachments tend to have the most tumultuous relationship history. And it doesn't just go into romantic relationships. You'll often see a pretty tumultuous relationship history with friends, maybe with blood family, maybe with work. It's kind of usually leads into a lot of different areas of their lives. And the thing about them that makes them confusing <laughs> is that they also embody tendencies of the anxious preoccupied and the avoidant dismissive type. They are that kind of seesaw or pendulum swinging back and forth pretty dramatically going back and forth and back and forth, which is why one day doing one thing could soothe them and make them happy. And the next day will infuriate them and make them angry. And this is the type more so than any other type. If this is a significant part of somebody's attachment style, where I do think there is deeper level of work needed. There is some deeper level of trauma healing. There does need to be some corrective experiences, possibly even some sort of intervention that involves physiologically rewiring or helping the client to supplement some serotonin or whatever it might be in the meantime until they're able to get to a place where they really can self-soothe. But this is a type where again, healing is possible. Secure attachment's always possible. Trauma healing's always possible. It's hard to say what exactly will soothe the disorganized attached person. What I can say for their partners or friends, not to take things personally. And that is extremely hard. It's extremely hard. I've worked with many clients who have disorganized attachment and <laughs> even for me, I'm like, ow, <laughs> you really think that? <laughs> and it's okay to show your feelings to them and tell them, you know, like that, that hurt me. That really hurts. And with disorganized attachers, it's pretty important for you if you're their caregiver friend or partner to kind of take a step back always and understand where, this stuff is coming from because it hardly ever has to do with what's actually happening in the moment. It usually has everything to do with a place that they're going back to and the way that they respond is, yeah, I think, yeah, very much like a feral animal. Yeah. But again, I have a lot of compassion for disorganized attachers because that was, that was also a significant part of my recovery too.
0: Wow. Well, that was fun, wasn't it? The moral of this story is it is your parents' fault. (laughs) And on that same note, if you are a parent of young children and they are acting out in certain ways, or you're a parent of adults and they act in certain ways, it's your fault. (laughs) However, The beauty of this story is we can change. I am going to have Juniper come back on so that we can dig into how to actually work with attachment styles within ourselves and if we are partnered with somebody or friends with somebody that is displaying these different types of styles, how do we really work with them? Because if I've learned one thing this year, it is that love doesn't really care you can care so much about somebody. You can love somebody so much that their attachment craziness, like, it doesn't really matter until you finally realize that you're the most important person in your life. If you haven't realized that yet, it is so time. And it's definitely time for you to jump into the inner circle that comes along with this podcast It's a premium membership through Supercast, and it is the same podcast, but without the inner circle advertisement, (laughs) and with bonuses, and most importantly, with a community of sisters. It is a sisterhood. If you're a man listening to this, and you're like, well darn, I would totally contribute to this podcast, don't worry, you can. There is a donate button. It's after the whole description and it's written in print. So if you find it and you donate, I can't even tell you how much that would mean to me because at this moment, Supercast doesn't make it super easy, but I have asked them to. Back to the circle though, this is where you can really start to tune into what is best for you and you will be validated that that is actually exactly what you are meant to experience. Women have been suppressing their pleasure for way too long. Pleasure in all areas of life. And it's time to get that pleasure back. Because when a woman is in her pleasure, just meaning that she's happy, she's feeling light and free and joyful, and she feels like she can expand in all her glorious ways, she gives more to the world than anything else. It's time to come into your power and your pleasure and your joy theboundlessheartpod.com slash inner circle. And I will have a link right at the top in the show notes for you because we are growing and sister, I'd love to grow with you. If you'd like to connect with Juniper before her next episode, you can find her at juniperwong.com. Don't forget to register for her free webinar I will have that link and her social media links in the show notes for you as well. Next week, we'll hear from Dylan James Lovett, who is a relationship coach, mostly working with men. And boy, did I have questions for him. Cannot wait. We'll see you there. We'll see you in the inner circle. And until next time, stay true to you. No worries. Whatever your attachment style is, you can heal. You can be secure. Give yourself all the love.